0: There are two primary passages to deal with this idea of Gog and Magog when we discuss it in the Bible. Uh, one of those is Ezekiel 38, 39. The other one is there in Revelation uh, 20. Uh, and so there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of different ideas and things that people have in regard to the Battle of Gog and Magog and what it is. Uh, a lot of, I think the average person probably believes that it's a, an event that takes place prior to uh, even the tribulation. Uh, that it's actually some great sign that uh, the, the rapture is coming soon. But, you know, I stand against that adamantly because there is no real major signs like this, like a fixed sign that you can look for uh, to let us know that the, that he's coming as a thief in the night. But instead, we're just supposed to be watching and waiting, pay attention uh, as we see the excitement growing in the air. Uh, the other common belief uh, is that it all takes place at the end of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, that being because of the fact that it is mentioned in the uh, the passage there in Revelation 20. I personally, I'm going to go ahead and get this out the way so that we can have a clear direction where we're going. I personally believe that there are two separate battles of Gog and Magog, so to speak. One of them I don't think should be called the Battle of Gog and Magog, and that's the one of Ezekiel 38, uh, the one at the end of the millennium. You're more than welcome to call it whatever you want. Uh, But the one at the uh, of Ezekiel 38, I believe, has another much more clear title given to it in the scripture. So let me first start by illustrating to you the differences between the battle uh, of Ezekiel 38, 39, uh, which is that famous battle uh, and that battle at Revelation 20, which very little is said about. So we'll read Ezekiel 38, verse three. It says, and I say, thus said the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, uh, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, uh, horses and horsemen, and all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So when you look at this passage, this is the introduction to what the battle is going to be like. God says he's putting a hook uh, into their jaw and he's going to draw them uh, into this battle. In fact, the Bible actually says only a small portion of these countries will be left behind. I think that's important to establish the difference between the two of them. Uh, And it seems like somebody's asking about the background. That is correct that this is. A certain valley from the Bible, Uh, but I'll get to that later uh, because I don't want to give spoilers yet. The other battle in Revelation 20, uh, you find is the one that I think is clearly defined when it takes place because it's put in a particular part of the Bible where we're seeing the time we're seeing time wind down. Uh, We're seeing that this is very clearly when the devil is being loosed after the thousand years, Uh, so we kind of know exactly when it's going to be, and it even tells us. Uh, it says, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out deceiving the nations, uh, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the battle. Uh, to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Uh, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you already see with these two battles, I think you can start to notice there's a little bit of a difference between the two of them in that this one's very clearly got a defined time period the other ones left so far open to interpretation but there seems to be some differences uh between the two of battles here uh i would even say at this point it would seem that revelation 20 that the devil is the one drawing the armies to battle uh whereas in ezekiel 38 god's taking credit for it however i don't want to build too much on that because once you understand what battle that is, you'll see the devil has his hand in that as well. The same thing like what you see with the book of Job and other places. Uh, there's so many times when the devil thinks he's winning and he thinks he's doing something, uh, he's just bringing to pass something God's already orchestrated. Uh, so then I want to take and compare the two. I want to look at some specific details to help further expand on the idea that these are not the same event, to show you some differences between the two of them. So let's look at first at the timing of the battle. Ezekiel 38 and 39 says, so I will make my holy, uh, that battle concerning it. It says, I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the holy one in Israel. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord. This is the day whereof I have spoken. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn with the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows uh, and the hand and the spears. And they shall burn them with fire seven years so that they shall not shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forest. Where they shall burn the weapons with fire. They shall spoil those that spoiled them and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. That's uh, Ezekiel 39, 7 through 10. Uh, and then in Revelation, that battle says, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So I want you to notice two things that stand out that these can't be the same time period. Because we understand very plainly, Revelation 20, that's the end. Uh, that's after immediately after the thousand years, that's the conclusion of that, that thousand year reign of Jesus Christ here upon earth. After that, we're stepping into what most of us would define as eternity, uh, with heaven here on earth and all of that kind of stuff in mind. Uh, you know, you have only really major event extending beyond that would be the great white throne of judgment. Uh, and so I want you to notice concerning this, that there is first the statement, this is the day whereof I have spoken. I do believe that that's a reference to the day of the Lord. And I think the context around it very much supports this. Uh, I think the context around it supports this because what you see uh, is he describes this as a day that Israel as his people uh, will be properly restored unto him. That they will finally see him as the Lord God. Uh, It's like what you're reading about, I believe, there in Zechariah when he says that they'll look at him and say, where did you receive these wounds in your hands and in your feet? It's that day. Uh, Also, we find that he's speaking of a specific day that he's already talked about, that we should already know what it is. Uh, And so in that regard, it also points to it being the day of the Lord. But beyond that, he talks about the whole world uh, seeing him for who he is at this point. And even beyond that, he talks about a time of peace following this immediately. A time where people are going to uh, beat their swords and shields and all that stuff uh, into you know, other things, into tools and stuff like that, because there's no longer need of those. All of that is terminology and things that are very clearly associated with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord. Uh, so we see that it would appear that the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is taking place in the buildup. Uh, to the day of the Lord. So most of you probably already figured out what I think that battle is, but for the ones who haven't, let's keep on going. Uh, There's also another point you have to take out, and that's that this battle has seven years of time that still exists beyond it. Seven years uh, where people are doing these things in terms of, you know, having the time of peace and not cutting down wood and instead burning their weapons and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And again, that points to the fact that it's not that there won't be anything after the millennium. It's that time won't be a thing after the millennium. After that thousand years are expired, uh, there will be no need of telling time as far as I can tell with Scripture. So that also would put this as not being able to be. Uh, The same battle as the one takes place at the end of time as we know it, and the other still has seven years at least behind it. And it also seems to be proceeding immediately before the day of the Lord, uh, which would put it prior to the kingdom. Now, then I want you to notice the armies that are being gathered to this battle. Uh, I want you to notice that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there are 10 specific countries being named. Uh, Now, most of these are names that we don't know today, so we'll discuss that. That's the the theory stuff I said we'll talk about at the end uh, in regards to who they are. But there are 10 armies very plainly named. Uh, But I want you to notice even some other details about the armies. Uh, In Ezekiel 38, 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, uh, shall thou not know it? Uh, And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, uh, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. So you you do see that it's being described here. We know it's made up of at least 10 nations, uh, specifically named. Uh, We do know that it is a great company and a mighty army and many people. So what you're going to see in Revelation 20 doesn't really shape the world in terms of making a difference. But as we're just illustrating what appears to be slight differences between the two of these, I think it's worth mentioning. Because Revelation 20 in verse 8 says, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Uh, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So while you could fit these two things together, you could say that there's more going on than what's said in Ezekiel 38. uh, I do think that it's clearly showing you two different stories, one where you have a fixed army gathering to fight, uh, the other where you have, because again, Ezekiel 38 says that God's going to hold back. uh, I believe it's a sixth Uh, of the armies there that are involved with this, this empire, this, this conglomerate of nations coming together, uh, that God's going to hold back a part of those. Whereas in Ezekiel, in Revelation 20, you have the whole world, it seems to be gathering to this battle. Uh, It seems that everyone who's not already gathered uh, themselves to the Lord to worship him, uh, as part of his kingdom, the ones who are still you know, out living their lives in their countries, uh, that those people are all being gathered together now that the devil has been set loose uh, and put this in their hearts to come and make war. Uh, so it does seem to be two dramatically different armies, one that's big, it's really intimidating, uh, and another that is literally every unbeliever in the world coming together at one time to try to wage war against God and his people. Now, I also want you to note the location of the battle. Again, not a tremendous difference. You could reconcile these, but I do think that if you pay attention, it seems to be painting two different pictures uh, because Ezekiel 39 Says, Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds, uh, so every sort, and to the beast of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Uh, so this one appears to be in the mountains uh, just outside of Jerusalem, that area where there's a number of mountains, uh, where there's even a very specific valley, which somebody's already talked about in the chat, uh, which can sometimes be called the valley of the mountains. Uh, the other one, on the other hand, is described as being taking place with people surrounding Uh, Jerusalem, it says, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about uh, and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So you see, they've surrounded Jerusalem in one story and the other, uh, they're meeting out in the mountains to fight. Uh, And then the end of the battle, this is a big one as well. In Ezekiel 39, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place uh, there of graves in Israel, uh, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea. And it shall stop the noses of the passengers, and there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude. And they shall call it the valley of Hamengog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them. And that they may cleanse the land, yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown uh the day that I will be glorified, saith the Lord God, and they shall sever out of men uh, sever out men of continual employment passing through the land to bury with the passengers, those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it after the end of the seven months shall they search. So this one's describing a battle ending with people being left utterly destroyed. I mean, just a massacre of people left so that it's taking months. Uh, It's taking a a tremendous amount of time so that people, it's their job. I mean, your daily job is to go into this battlefield and clean up the bodies and bury them. Uh, It is an incredible thing when you think about this. The idea is taking seven months uh, for all these things, for all the bodies to be buried. Uh, because there's just a massive battlefield left open, and again, if you've already called on and you figure out figured out what I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is, uh, then you will note that that particular battle uh, that I'm going to be talking about in a minute that it ends uh, with the Antichrist and his army being utterly massacred and compared to the idea of pressing grapes in a wine press Uh, and it says that a field of blood is left uh, that would have covered this entire area and the entire valley uh, to which is being referenced which really seems to line up with that and fit that revelation 20 on the other hand says and fire came down from god out of heaven and devoured them And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever you notice something about that other army they're devoured fire come down and devoured them when fire devours something it means that it consumes it that there's nothing left of it uh there's not seven months worth of bodies to be buried because the bodies are gone Uh, Think of this in comparison to when Elijah uh, prayed and God sent down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, to devour that sacrifice there on Mount Carmel. uh, So that the sacrifice and the altars and everything else that were connected to it were all gone. Uh, And you'll see that it's very much the same idea being discussed in this. So what is the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39? I think Jonas has already called on. I think a number of people have already called on. Uh, Because it's not some great mystery. If you really pay attention to what I'm pointing out to you in the terminology and the language of it, uh, it becomes quite clear, especially for the people from my church, because we've talked about this a lot. Let me read to you Ezekiel 38 uh, verses 18 through 23. We're going to pick out uh, what I consider to be some major events uh, that are described as taking place in connection to this battle. And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that I that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven uh, and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Uh, And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my uh, mountains, saith, the Lord God, every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence uh, and with blood, and I will rain upon him and, his, and upon his bands uh, and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain uh, and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Uh, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord so let me point out a couple major events that you notice uh, going on in this passage the first one is you have a massive earthquake uh that he describes as shaking the whole world uh the 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 epicenter of it he seems to be describing as being in jerusalem uh and again if this connected to a second coming in the way that i say it is that makes perfect sense that it would be connected uh that it would begin where he's going to touch down at with the mount of olives and so forth Uh, But you have this earthquake like nothing in history so that the fishes of the seas, the fowls of the air, the beasts of the field, the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men upon the face of the earth shall shake at his presence. So there's a massive earthquake unlike anything you've ever seen. Uh, Then you notice that the mountains are going to be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. Uh, There is an event that we have talked about many times in prophecy and I'll show it to you in a little while uh, where this is very clearly defined that the mountains are going to be shaken out of their places by a massive earthquake, unlike any other. Uh, and then you'll also notice here in this same passage that, cry, that you have, there's an overflowing uh, of rain and great hailstone and fire and brimstone. Uh, what you have in this passage then uh, is the great earthquake Mountains being cast down uh, and being connected with a tremendous storm. Uh, great hail being cast down with fire and brimstone being mingled with it. Again, something else that we'll show you uh, is very clearly connected to stuff we've already seen in, in other studies of prophecy. Uh, however, especially if you're watching our timeline of prophecy. Uh, however, there's one major thing here that really needs to be taken out uh, and understood. It says, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, if you go back earlier in this passage, uh, he's discussing this idea as well. It's not just here in this one particular verse, uh, but there's a very clear understanding that When this battle is taking place and this earthquake happens and the mountains are cast down and hail and fire are rained down from the sky and there's this massive storm and all this other stuff going on, that at the same time, the eyes of many nations are going to see him. So the people of the earth are actually going to see him with their own eyes Uh, And they will know that he is the Lord. So this is Christ being revealed to all mankind, to the world. And again, you'll see in other passages that the emphasis is beyond just many nations, uh, but to the world. Uh, The same as earlier he mentions in Israel, but the earthquake we see very clearly affects the whole world. Uh, So don't get hung up too much uh, in misunderstanding that. But there's one phrase here uh, that you find in Ezekiel 39 that really jumps out beyond anything else. Uh, in terms of setting the timing of this, because it is almost directly a quote. Uh, In fact, it may be a direct quote uh, to something we've already uh, possibly read or something we will read over in the book of Revelation. It says in Ezekiel 39, "And And thou, son of man, Thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. And ye shall eat the flesh of mighty and drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams and of lambs and of, of goats and of bullocks and of, of them fatlings of Bashan. Uh, And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus shall ye be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. So again, this is something very, very important that you take this out is this sacrifice, this assembling uh, of the birds being called to eat the flesh of kings and of uh, of mighty men and of, uh, and of the great men of the earth. That's a very important thing for you to pick out and understand when setting the timing of what Ezekiel 38 and 39 is. Because I'm going to show you where that is almost word for word stated over in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> but there's another part as well. Uh, That I think if your doctrine's right, will also help you set this uh, very easily, too. And that's also found in Ezekiel 39. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel uh, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame uh, and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me Uh, when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of of their enemies' lands and sanctified them in the sight of many nations. So you actually have at this point a spiritual restoration we've seen discussed. Uh, When he's talking about Israel, knowing that he's the Lord, we've even read other verses here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that says they're going to know that he's the Lord at this time. Uh, But you also see them being gathered into their land so that they can have peace and safety uh, like they've never had before. Uh, They're being brought in together. And so there is both a spiritual and national restoration in a fullness, uh, not like what we see today. Uh, what we see today could be described if Christ was to come, uh, we could see it being described as the setup for this, the beginning. They have a nation, they're gathering, uh, but the Jewish people are still scattered throughout the world. This is the completion of what you may already be seeing uh, as you're seeing these nations, uh, the, the the Jewish people being gathered out of every nation. And, of course, we understand that these are the ones, uh, again, because the time is being after the tribulation, uh, who have... Very clearly, put their trust in Christ and are now seeing him and seeing again what we see talked about uh, there, I believe in Zechariah, with them looking at him saying, "Where did you receive these wounds?" Now, what that means then is I think that you have one clear answer uh, as to what this battle is. Let us look and compare the information that's been given to us, that there is a great earthquake that affects the whole world. There is mountains being shaken out of their places and cast down to the ground. There is hailstones and fire being rained down. Uh, Jesus is being revealed to the eyes of the world. Birds are being called to the sacrifice of the flesh of men. Uh, and Israel is being spiritually and nationally restored finally and completely. So I believe there leaves one, one place in the whole Bible that clearly this is talking about, uh, and that is the Battle of Armageddon uh, that we so typically call it. Now, again, I know some people are gonna stumble with this, they're gonna have a hard time, especially if you've just dropped in uh, and you didn't you catch the whole part where I've clearly illustrated that Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, and Revelation 20 are two different battles. But even if you were part of that, there's still some struggle maybe because this is what we've always been taught. This is what we always understood. But there's something to notice. The Bible actually clearly shows not only how this is possible, but why this is possible. Uh, that one is describing one battle and one the other. Because the only reason we connect them together is because these are the only two passages where Gog and Magog are... Uh, clearly connected i mean they're, they're being discussed and talked about and being involved in a battle so there is i mean it's very clear there's something going on here uh in the same way that when you talk about world war one and world war two uh you have uh, a lot of similarities a lot of the same countries being involved between these two battles it's a very similar situation going on with the battle of gog and magog uh in that and of course understand that we're the ones who gave it that title the title of the battle of gog and magog for god he's just talking about a battle uh, same as with the understanding of the Battle of Armageddon. We, we typically are where that understanding comes from of the title. But my point of this is that you see there are two different battles. The timings don't line up. They can't be the same. But the place where God's already told you that one is the following of the other, the sequel to the original, uh, is in that he told you when he says, I put the hook in your jaw to bring you to war. Uh, talking about these armies that are going to go into the battle uh, of Ezekiel 38 and 39, he's already said, I'm going to hold back a part. Uh, Again, I believe it was a sixth, a sixth part of all the nations that are involved. He said, I'm going to hold them back so that they don't proceed into the battle. Uh, And so what has happened uh, is that from the time of one battle to the time of the other, uh, a thousand years have passed. Uh, And in that time, God has, let's say, sifted and filtered out this world so that the believers are gathered together to him uh, there to Jerusalem. Uh, and the unbelievers are still set out throughout the world. Uh, they're at the end of all what's happened in the tribulation. And, of course, I believe the judgments of nations have passed and all these things. A lot of events and a lot of time has passed. Uh, but that sixth part and the rest of the world as well, who are like minded of like heart with them, that they refuse the Messiah Uh, When the devil is set loose, uh, God's final filter for all of them to gather them together for their judgment uh, is that when the devil set loose, he's going to put this into their heart to be gathered there uh, to come and set war against him the same way that the devil led the angels when they fell. Uh, And when they gather around Jerusalem, they're going to be destroyed. So that's the Gog and Magog uh, you find in Revelation 20. You find them being utterly destroyed and wiped out, uh, whereas... When we look at uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, this is very clearly the Battle of Armageddon that's preceding all of that. So then, understanding the Battle of Armageddon, I want to show you how it fulfills these six points that we took out that very clearly uh, are seen in Ezekiel 38 and 39: the great earthquake, the mountains, and so forth. Uh, and so we'll take them two at a time. But when we look at the great earthquake, and again, if you're jumping into this and you've missed our other studies in prophecy, uh, you probably need to go back and get at least the timeline of prophecy video, uh, because you're going to disagree on me, including the seals in this, because you might feel like they go in the first three and a half years. I showed in that video very plainly, I think. Uh, that the seals are a covering of the entire seven years uh, and then the trumpets are zooming in a little more and the vials zooming in a little more focusing on the last three and a half years with each of those one from a distance and one very close up Uh, and so I'm not going to take time to explain that but I'm going to assume people who are watching this video the majority of you are already uh, have been a part of the other videos to know what I'm talking about. So looking at that sixth seal, which I say includes the last three and a half years uh, of the tribulation and especially building up uh, to the second coming of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and even looking into the second coming, uh, you see this description being said in Revelation 6, 12 and 14. And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal uh, and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood, and the heaven departed uh, as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Uh, That's Revelation 6, 12, and 14. I didn't include the seventh trumpet for lack of space, and also it has the least amount to say about this, but it does also mention there being a great earthquake at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in both these passages, you have this idea of a great earthquake and the mountains being shaken out of place. Revelation 16 with the seventh uh vial it says and there were voices and thunders and lightnings uh and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great and the great city was divided into three parts Uh, And the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. So you have both of these things very plainly described as being that uh, what's going on in that seventh vial is being poured out. Uh, This idea that there's an earthquake beginning uh, in Jerusalem so strong that the great city is being divided in three portions, it says. Uh, But you have this idea of this earthquake that there's never been one like this in all of human history. So much that the earth is being shaken out of place, uh, that all the mountains are are crumbling. The cities are crumbling. uh, Everything that man has made is being brought to its knees. Uh, And you see that is what's being described here. That's what was being described in Ezekiel 38. You see it in Revelation 6, Revelation 11, a little less. Uh, Isaiah 13, I think, brings it out. He says, therefore, I will shake the heavens uh, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts uh, and in the days of his fierce anger. So, again, an earthquake so powerful uh, that it is shaking the earth out of its place is the way he describes it uh and again that's also a prophetic prophecy concerning the second coming you can go read the rest of this chapter and pick that up if you need to uh isaiah 24 is also a second coming prophecy chapter uh and it says the earth is utterly broken down the earth is clean dissolved the earth is moved exceedingly Uh, The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard uh, and shall be removed like a cottage uh, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. So he says it's going to be shaken so that it's like a drunkard being shaken, uh, like a drunk person who can't stand up straight. That's the kind of earthquake that's going to shake when Jesus touches down there uh, at the Mount of Olives uh, as he's coming back with the second coming uh and then hebrews twelve twenty six has this to say uh, that whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised saying yet once more, I shape not the earth only but also the heaven' Uh, also heaven. And so you see that one thing you notice about the description of the earthquake is that it's not just one shaking the uh, the ground in ways we're knowing and shaking certain cities, but it's shaking the whole world. And he even mentions throughout most of these passages an idea that the heaven and the earth uh, are going to be shaken because of how great this earthquake is. So we see that as very clearly being part of the second coming of the day of the Lord. Uh, and then you have also... The next two of these, which is the hell and fire being rained down and the whole world seeing him, both of which I think also can clearly be seen as being part of his second coming as the day of the Lord. Uh, you see Revelation nineteen eleven, and I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness uh, he doth judge and make war. So this idea of the heavens being open uh, and him coming on a white horse—you'll see—is supported that not only does this happen, but people see this. Uh, In fact, let me jump down to the bottom of my list just to make that clear. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. So describing the Lord Jesus, you see these two passages when you put them together very clearly paint this picture of him coming in the clouds on a white horse. All the world seeing him, and especially Israel is called out in Revelation 1 as being that part of Israel that's still there. They're going to see him. Uh, they're going to see what's going on. Uh, and so you have a very clear pointing then to his second coming and being seen, you know, being seen to the eyes of the nations, as was discussed in Ezekiel 38, 39. Uh, Revelation eleven nineteen 19 says, and the temple of God was opened in heaven uh, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Uh, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Uh, so you see there, I believe that would put you with the uh, with the seventh, uh, yeah, that would be the seventh trumpet that we didn't read a minute ago. Uh, the seventh trumpet there, you see that he's describing that as Christ is getting ready to come back, a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, a great storm uh, with lightning and thunder uh, and an earthquake, as we already saw, and great hail. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mention the fire being rained down with it, but uh, the other points are all checked there. Um, then Revelation 16 and 21, and there fell upon men great hell out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent and men blasphemed God because the plague of the hell, uh, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Uh, and so you see there another passage discussing again, this same idea, uh, of the hell being poured out, uh, on them. Then also, as we look, uh, and that would be, I believe, the seventh vial at that point. Um, yeah, it should be seventh vial. Uh, and then this should be the set, uh, the sixth seal, I think, again. Uh, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid, himself, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us. Uh, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, That's the sixth uh, seal there. Uh, You have all the men of the earth seeing him and crying out for the mountains to fall on them as they're running to hide from him. Isaiah 2 gives you an expanded view of what that looks like. So I encourage you to look that up and study it if you want. Uh, Matthew 24 even discusses this idea of him being seen by everyone. Uh, in Matthew 24, in verse 30, it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, uh, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So again, you want to know how I define and outline Matthew 24. Go back to the video from Monday about the timeline of prophecy. want to even deeper look at it go back to the video from sometime before the last question and answer i did by myself uh where i describe it there uh but looking at this this is talking about the sacket coming and the idea that every eye is going to see him and the tribes of the earth are going to mourn uh because they see him coming in the clouds with power and great glory so when you look at that so far four of the six major points that you see about the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 line up perfectly with the battle of Armageddon, whereas they don't with the battle of revelation 20, because again, that's the difference between world war one and world war two. We've already illustrated how that works. I'm only repeating it because people are still coming into the video as we go. Then the two that I said are the most important are the birds being called to the feast, Israel restored spiritually and nationally. Now in all truth, the, the second coming in Christ being revealed to every eye should have been included as being uh, the most important because that should tell you when it is. But I know people who still struggle with that uh, and look at that as something other than what it is. That's why I didn't list it as the most important. The one, though, that sets this because it's directly quoting one from the other uh, is Revelation 19, 17 and 18, looking at the birds being called to the feast. It says, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses uh, and of them that sit on them, uh, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Uh, So you see very clearly describing the same idea. I mean, almost even word for word in certain parts of that, uh, of what we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, And then the idea of Israel having a time at the second coming, where when Christ comes and they finally see him for who he is, where Israel is not only, you have that that remnant who have been spiritually restored, uh, but also you have the fulfillment of the national restoration as in all reality in the Battle of Armageddon, that part of Israel who aligned themselves with the Antichrist will be wiped out with his army and the rest, that believing remnant, will be there to be gathered together to him. Uh, But I think Zephaniah says it best uh, since that isn't, The whole point of the book of Zephaniah uh, is looking to uh, Christ restoring them at the end time and looking at uh, just especially a lot of their side of prophecy and what's going on with Israel throughout uh, the tribulation and so forth uh but zephaniah 3 verse 14 uh, through 20 says sing o daughter of zion shout o israel be glad and rejoice with all the heart o daughter of jerusalem the lord hath taken away thy judgments he hath cast out thine enemy the king of israel even the lord is in the midst of thee so again it's very clearly second coming stuff there uh thou shalt see thou shalt not see evil anymore uh, in the day that in the day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hand be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will, I'm sorry, he will. Uh, joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo. All that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time I will bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, uh, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. I will turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord." So, again, Zephaniah, if you weren't part of that study, you missed the whole thing. Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord over and over again because it's the clear point. Uh, He even begins his book by making it clear that he's talking about the day of the Lord. We saw so much about prophecy. We see this idea of Israel coming in uh, and other parts of the book and and being gathered into a land where they didn't have to build. They didn't have to farm. God's giving it to them. Uh, And you see just this incredible passage where he's discussing that those who were ashamed of the of the wickedness of Israel and the idolatry and all of that and turned to Christ. Uh, And then they're finally being reunited with him uh, and being with him forever so that they don't have to fear and they have peace for now on, is what he's saying. And he's telling them that you're no longer going to be a shame and a reproach to all the nations like you used to be, but you're going to be given a a name and praise uh, will be bestowed upon you. You'll be lifted up uh, and exalted to even some degree. Uh, You see, that's what's going on there. That's also very clearly, maybe with less poetry behind it, being described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, because these are the same. Events. So, what you have then is a very clear understanding, in my opinion, that there are six major things being described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that are perfectly fulfilled by the Battle of Armageddon and not fulfilled by anywhere else. That is the only battle we have that ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the battle where we have the birds being called to the feast. It's the only place where we can truly say Israel is being both restored nationally and spiritually and finally coming to know the Messiah. Uh, and and to truly know him for who he is uh, and no longer being a shame and reproach to people. Even people who try to put this battle prior to the tribulation are not going to be able to make that fit because Again, there's no battle that can meet that requirement of Israel being spiritually and nationally restored, as well as uh, the idea of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Even if you want to claim that there's coming a great earthquake like no other again, uh, that's that has to be the one at the end of the tribulation, because there is no other earthquake that will ever match up to that. So all of these things, the earthquakes, the hell and fire, the mountains being crumbled, Israel being restored, the birds being called to the feast, Christ being revealed, all of that is fulfilled in the battle of Armageddon. But again, no other battle can really fulfill all of that. In fact, these things can't be fulfilled by any other battle. The only one of these that we see even remotely represented anywhere else in the Bible is the birds being called to a feast, uh, as you find passage of Jeremiah discussing this idea. Uh, But the rest of this leaves us with a very clear understanding about what is going on that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the battle of Armageddon uh, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 are the World War I to is Revelation 20 being the World War II in terms of battles of Gog and Magog, uh, that there are very clearly two of them and Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the battle of Armageddon. So I think it really only leaves us one question to ask ourselves and that is who is fighting this battle? <clears throat> so I'm going to give you a prophecy lesson, even a little bit of a history lesson to a degree uh, while we're still in what I'm considering to be the uh, heavily doctrinal based part of this study. You'll get to the, uh, the theory and idea stuff later where I'm giving permission for people to cut out who don't want to stick around. But let's stick with me for now If we discuss this idea of who is involved in this battle. I think to really understand and appreciate this, you have to go back to Daniel, uh, specifically to Daniel 7, as he describes the empires, uh, four great empires uh, that will somehow lead into the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, Daniel, in this prophecy, which is building up to the kingdom of the Antichrist and then the kingdom of Christ as well, uh, it begins with this statement. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. So we understand this now. The Bible gives us enough interpretation of it. That each of these are four great empires uh, that are rising up out of the world uh, that are going to at different points rule. Uh, it's, you'll notice, especially in that area uh, surrounding Israel. The first one of these we see uh, is Babylon. Uh, It is the lion, uh, and my slideshow is not keeping up with me, so I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. Maybe we'll get it to go backwards and do its job. Uh, But the first one of these we see is Babylon. It is the lion. Uh, The slideshow is taking away my text, so my verses I have. Are not with me, but I'll just give you a description of it. You can go read Daniel 7. Uh, I'm not going to hold you for me to look those up. Uh, in Daniel 7, what you find describing the lion is the idea that there's a lion with two wings of eagles uh, that is the first one to rise up out of that sea. Uh, And it says that God is going to pluck off those two wings and that he's going to give the lion the heart as a heart of a man. And he's going to stand up on his back feet and walk. Uh, Now, we understand this to be Babylon. We understand very plainly that this is talking about the idea uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, especially as he was humbled. He uh, became likened to a beast. And then after a time, uh, God brought him back up on his feet and gave him a heart like a man. We do understand that's what it seems to be discussing and talking about. Uh, so we understand the first of these great nations, uh, these great empires that will come upon the earth uh, is the lion with the wings of the eagle, uh, and that is Babylon. Now, the next of these is Medo-Persia, uh, and thankfully the, the PowerPoint is going to cooperate on this one. Uh, Medo Persia, it says, and behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, uh, and it raised itself up on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. What you note about Medo Persia in this particular thing is that, of course, once it's two empires working together, uh, the Medes and the Persians, one side of that being raised up above the other. That's why one shoulder is a little higher than the other in this. Uh, particular image. He also has three ribs between his teeth. I believe in most people that that represents the three kings uh, who would reign in Persia during the time over the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, that you had, of course, uh, I believe Cyrus or Darius, I get the names mixed up all the time. Uh, and then you had this, You had also the combination of a father and son working together uh, so that you have these three kings that are represented by the three ribs. I think is how most people take that. Uh, Beyond the bear, you have an even more strange description of a leopard with it says, after this, I beheld and lo another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. uh, And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to him. Uh, So, again, most people interpret the four wings as, and the fact that it's a leopard is discussing this idea uh, of how the the, the Grecian Empire, I believe maybe they talk about four kings or four uh, something coming together on that one uh, and how quickly it comes. The main point that's always discussed on Greece is how quickly it takes over. The one that's of interest to us, though, uh, I'm rushing through those a little bit because those aren't of the particular need of what we're trying to get at. The one that stands out is when you come to the fourth beast. Uh, We understand this to begin with Rome, but I think there's some interesting stuff that we have to study and understand. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, uh, and it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, uh, and it was diverse from all beasts that, that were before it, uh, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn uh, before whom There were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a man and the mouth speaking great things. So this fourth beast, most people interpret this to be wrong. I do think that that's true. Uh, I do think where we tend to miss out is we fail to understand something that i think is plainly illustrated when you instead of looking at the beast you look at the uh the vision of the the statue the man with the head of gold uh and the chest and arms of silver uh and you know as it proceeds to go down when it gets to that fourth empire uh you have legs made of iron that then proceed into being legs of iron and clay mixed together that just don't quite fit together uh I think in that particular case, what you see is that one of these empires always leads to the other. Again, the the illustration here with the beast doesn't actually necessarily show that until we see it fulfilled. In the end of it, we'll get how that all works out. But Right now, it it sounds a little strange. You have the the lion, you have the bear, you have the leopard. uh, And now you have this beast that he says is not like anything else you've ever seen before. Uh, It's unique to all other beasts. So. Let's try to understand a little bit more about the beast uh, as we see the description of it there. I think here helps us understand something about the timing concerning this beast. That then I would know the truth uh, of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass. Uh, which devoured, breaking in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn uh, that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, and I beheld Uh, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, Uh, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. What seems to be being described with this fourth beast like no other is the idea that following the Grecian Empire and its fall to the Roman Empire, (coughs) that a beast or an empire rose that was unlike any empire preceding it. Uh, And that this empire would then proceed to exist in some capacity uh, beyond that point so that at some point a new horn or a new king, because we understand we'll see later uh, what the horns mean. We're going to see that in the next passage we read. A new king rises up out of this empire. A new horn grows up. Uh, and that horn has eyes and a mouth and he begins to speak great things and he uses his power to make war against the saints until the Ancient of Days, which is a term referring to Jesus, uh, comes and judges him. Uh, we also see that with the with the story there with the statue that talks about a, a stone being carved out without with being made without being carved of hands uh, that is cast at the feet and crumbles all the empires. Uh, and so you see this idea of how one empire builds to the next empire, to the next empire, to the next, until you get to the Roman Empire. And it seems to be presenting this idea that whatever empire that is, that it never truly goes away. It's almost like it goes to sleep uh, until this other horn grows out of it uh, or that it's just there. It's there and we don't even realize it, let's say, today. Uh, but he he helps us understand a little bit of what the prophecy means. Um, Here in this next passage, he says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms uh, and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Uh, And the 10 horns out of this kingdom are 10 kings that shall arise, uh, and another shall arise after them, uh, and he shall be diverse from the first, Uh, and he shall subdue three kings, uh, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, uh, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, uh, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So it's three and a half years is the idea of that. But what he's teaching here is this idea that what I've just said, you have this beast that rises up at the fall of the Grecian Empire. It is the fall of the Grecian Empire. We know that Greece, uh, Rome took over Greece, and that's the time period where the Bible is set. And he talks about this idea of this beast conquering the earth. And so we typically always associate this uh, as being the Antichrist, uh, conquering there during the tribulation. Cause again, it's very clearly he's discussing the antichrist and this horn. Uh, and just for that, I have to say that that part I think is clear, but there also seems to be this idea because we typically associate this as coming from Rome, but also being the antichrist. And you see it again with the statue of the man that the legs of iron start first, but then they begin to be mingled with clay Uh, is it seems that this beast is different, not only in the sense that it's just not describable. It's not like any other animal. It's not like you can't just say it's an animal with this. It's something unique. But also in the fact that unlike these other beasts, it seems like this one sticks around. Uh, It seems like he comes about and he sticks around in a way that the others don't. Um, So that, of course, brings us then to the big question of what is this beast? Uh, And you do get a description for it uh, there in Revelation. See, what you'll notice about this beast is something I've been saying you could see illustrated very plainly uh, in the the prophecy, I believe, from Daniel, two about the statue, is that this beast is an amalgamation. He is a mixture of what has come before him, but he is far more fearsome uh, than any of those that came before. Uh, he is unique to all of them. Uh, while he has parts of each of them, he has the feet of the Medo-Persian Empire. He has the basic structure of the Grecian Empire. Uh, he has uh, the bite of the uh, the Babylonian Empire, but even then it's more fearsome. It's not just the, that he has the mouth of a lion, but he has teeth like iron. Uh, he's not just got the feet of the bear, but he has claws like brass. Uh, so he has connection to the Babylonians, but much more. His bite is like theirs, but more fierce. Uh, He has the ability to stomp people under his feet like the Persians, but it's more fierce. Uh, He has the speed uh, to conquer and take over the world like the Grecians, but it's more fierce. He has the connections with the heads, which uh, you see that with the Grecians, it was four here. He has seven, you know, everything about him. It's like he took a little bit of what the others had to offer, but he's bigger and more powerful. Uh, And again, we see it seems to begin with Rome, but it seems to extend well beyond that. We know it extends well beyond that because it's very clearly describing what we typically call Mystery Babylon uh, or Babylon the Great or so forth, uh, being the kingdom of the Antichrist. Uh, And so I think it's important when you understand that is to simply know that this is the kingdom of the Antichrist uh, that is going into this battle. Uh, And so what we're going to try to do from here is to just learn a little bit about this kingdom and what is it? What is the kingdom of the antichrist? Uh, and so this is where I give permission for people to check out uh, because what we've talked about until now is pretty much straightforward doctrine. Uh, we've really discussed the, the general idea of, okay, you know, this is what the battle, this, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is World War I to the World War II of Revelation 20, that the Battle of Magog and Magog, as we typically call it, is actually uh, the Battle of Armageddon. uh, And then therefore, what that means is that the army that is gathering is the army of the Antichrist, that that's those nations you see coming together to fight, those 10 nations and whoever else may be involved uh, gathering there in the valley of uh, Megiddo, getting ready to go fight. So with that, the reason why I say I give you some permission to check out at this point is what I'm going to use the rest of my time to do. So I've already finished what I would normally take for one of these lessons. Uh, Now would normally be the time I would close. I'm going to take a few minutes just to give you some thoughts uh, and some ideas that I have concerning what nations will make up the empire, uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, if that's something interesting to you, I encourage you to stick around. I think you should stick around because it's worth hearing, uh, even if you disagree with me, because I'm not teaching this as fact. I'm not teaching this as clearly taught Bible information. I'm teaching this as an opinion because what we can say is there's a few of these nations that we know who they are because they still exist in some capacity today. But seven out of ten It's theory. Uh, It's using biblical information uh, with a mixture of a little bit of historical information to try to pinpoint what country is this. So while I think it's good for you to know it, I don't think that I would be offended if you disagree with me in any way uh, or that if you, again, don't follow along. So hopefully you're going to stick around with me, but we're going to take and look at who are these 10 kings Uh, of Ezekiel 38 and 39, these 10 horns even being discussed with this beast, uh, I think may possibly be the connection between the two that they are maybe talking about the same thing. Uh, And I think we're going to take that idea and we're going to run with that to try to discuss the idea of who is the kingdom of the Antichrist. Because Ezekiel 38, again, gives us 10 specific countries. Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, Togarmah, uh, Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish. Now, some of these we think we know where they are. People in general assume they know, but I might surprise you, especially when we get to Tarshish. Uh, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, when I get to that, I'll show you. We clearly know where they are today. Uh, but I do believe that these 10 kingdoms are very important because God tells us specifically they're going to the Battle of Armageddon. The issue you have is that these are ancient names. Uh, we wouldn't call those countries by these names in general like we used to. For example, I'm going to show you in a minute a country named Javan. Uh, and Javan is not what we call it. That's not the name we call that country anymore. We call it country Greece. Uh, and that one we can figure out because there's some Bible information to help us see that. Uh, and again, historical maps even show you that. Uh, but a lot of these countries, we have lost the names to time. Uh, so let's begin with them in the order that they're presented to us. Uh, and again, this is my opinion. So if you're from Turkey, don't get offended uh, because this is just not real. To be honest with you, this is not just my opinion. The majority of people agree on this one. Uh, I'm not alone in my thought here. So let's start with it. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, uh, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, uh, and prophesy against him. Now, I'm starting with Tubal as opposed to Meshach because Meshach is a little less clear. Meshach, to be honest with you, I don't know that anybody has a strong proof or evidence as to where Meshach would be other than the fact that Meshach is very clearly connected to Tubal. Uh, in some way. Uh, so we'll get to that one in a minute. But Tubal is a actually quite a standout area. Uh, most any historical map you look at, uh, most anything you try to find to get the idea, most everybody agrees that Tubal is probably Turkey. Now, where most people disagree uh, is that some people try to fit all of these countries just inside of Turkey. So that Turkey alone is the, uh, the land of Magog. Uh, some people... Uh, tried to make Turkey just part of this and some of the others part of turkey there's a mixture of things whereas I believe in general since we 're talking about ten kingdoms being or ten nations being put together to make up this kingdom, uh, I would say that Tubal would represent most if not all of Turkey uh, since we're looking to try to pinpoint a country uh, now again most maps would dis- most maps would agree with me. But I don't like to just take maps. When I can give you Bible reasons to believe something, I want to give it to you uh, so that we have a reason to believe it and not just, hey, that's a nice idea. Uh, because without Bible reasons, it's just a nice idea. And here's where Javin comes in. It says, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, they were thy merchants. They traded the persons of men and the vessels of brass in thy market. Now, I did a lot of research as to which countries Uh, at the time that Ezekiel was written, uh, would have been countries famous for trading brass uh, and slaves. Uh, And you might be surprised to know that at that point in time, Javan, which we know today to be Greece, uh, and Turkey were the two main countries for both of those things at that particular time. Uh, So in the time period where Ezekiel is being written, it seems like Greece and Turkey Again, history agrees with this, uh, would have been the two places that led uh, in the selling of brass uh, and in the slave market. Uh, again, that's something historically you can look it up and see that. Uh, and that's a good Bible reason as to why mixing again Bible and history a little bit uh, is why I believe Tubal is probably Turkey. Then Meshach, I put it with Georgia, but I you can move it to any country in that area and I would not disagree with you uh because most any country in that area and I would not disagree with you uh because in the end of it it, we're not given a lot of information about Meshach and I can't find a lot of maps or anything to the degree uh but what I did find to be consistent is most people do put it in the area of Georgia uh going up towards Russia in some degree I think that's again the reason why a lot of people take it and they just automatically assume oh Gog and Magog is Russia Uh, Because there is this mention of to the north and stuff, this idea of it being in the north, especially when you look at old maps. Some maps do put it far as far north as Russia. Uh, I just don't see it uh, when I look at what little information is given in the Bible. And I don't see it when I uh, look at the maps and the history of it as well. I do want to bring out one thing, though. And this is another place we seem to miss is that Magog is not one nation in this battle. Magog is a combination of Meshach and Tubal. It is two countries working together, kind of like how we have the European Union uh, and things of that, uh, that degree we have today. Gog would seem to be, it could be that Gog is the capital. I do personally believe that Gog is referring to the leader, uh, especially some of the passages we read about uh, in Ezekiel 38 uh, earlier in 39. It refers to Gog like he is a person who's going to get defeated in the battle. Uh, so it could be talking about the capital of this land, a shared capital between Meshach and Tubal, uh, or it could be referring to the leader of these two joined countries. Uh, and I think that's probably the other reason why it's so complicated and so hard uh, to determine uh, where Meshach is uh, specifically because of the fact that the main thing we know about Meshach uh, is that it worked in conjunction with Tubal. Uh, there are a few other things to know about it. Um, it says, And I say, Thus said the Lord God, behold, I am against the old Gog, uh, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. That's just illustrating the point uh, that Gog is a very likely a person, the leader, uh, the prince who's leading those countries. Uh, in all reality, though, uh, when you see a prince of a country or an area, a lot of time that's speaking to some uh, some demonic level, like, for example, the prince of Persia. Uh, we typically believe when that's referred to as the prince of Persia, holding back Michael from reaching Daniel uh, as being a fallen angel uh, who's uh, interceding to get in the way there of God speaking to Daniel. Uh, we also uh, see that in Ezekiel uh, that the devil is called the king of Tyre. Uh, And so it could be very likely that this is a title for the Antichrist himself, Uh, especially since this is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. Now, another thing we can see about this idea of Magog as a as a joining of two countries meshach and Tubal it says and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws and I will bring thee forth uh, and all thine army horses and horsemen all of them clothed with all sorts of armor even a great company with bucklers and shields all of them handling swords uh, so you see again it's being presented that this is one country uh, that or two countries coming together as one uh, functioning and being joined together like the Medo-Persian Empire, again, like what you see with the European Union today. uh, So many countries have these kind of connections, the United Kingdom, it's not a strange thing at all. Uh, And so we see that even back in those times, it seemed to be quite common uh, and that people would have knew where he was talking about because they would have known them by these names. Uh, Again, another reason why I believe this has to be their ancient names is because some of these other countries are being called by their ancient names. Uh, There is Meshach Tubal uh, and all her multitude, her grave uh, around about him, uh, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, uh, though they cause terror in the land of the living. so this is just again some more passages showing you how the two of them always function together uh and so the best information we have about Meshek is its connection to tubal uh, and that's why i say it could be any country around the area of turkey if turkey is tubal uh it could be most any of those countries uh we don't really have a good fixed standard as to which it would be persia we know because Uh, Up until fairly recently in human history, uh, Iran was still called Persia. So I don't have to say a lot about this one. Uh, We see that Persia will be part of the battle. Uh, It'll be drawn into the uh, battle as part of the kingdom of the Antichrist, just like Gog and uh, just like Magog uh, with Meshach and Tubal. Uh, We see also with it uh, that Ethiopia is listed. We know where Ethiopia is today. You can debate about the fact that historically Ethiopia may have been a little further south and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. Uh, The idea is that Ethiopia in some capacity, maybe it's a little further south, maybe it's current Ethiopia, uh, but a country of that area. Uh, And then Libya, same idea. You could debate that historically it may have been shifted. The borders may have been a little bit different. uh, But generally speaking, we know where Libya is. It's still a country today. Uh, So those three don't take a lot of answers. Now, the next two are probably the hardest ones of them all uh, to figure out. Uh, And I have no issue whatsoever if you disagree with me on these. Uh, These are built, a lot of it, out of speculation. Gomer, I think, uh, is the hardest because there is no real information about Gomer. We don't really know anything much about it. Uh, What we do know about Gomer uh, is that it says the sons of Japheth. Uh, So you have Ham, Shem, Japheth, the sons of Japheth, uh, Gomer uh, and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tiras. Uh, the reason why that's important is because this will also help you understand how we try to figure out where some of these things are, uh, is that a lot of times these ancient names are based off of the names, of, for example, Noah's grandsons in this particular case, uh, or even sometimes great-grandsons or great-great-grandsons. But it's, the names of the area are based off of which one of these descendants first settled there. And so what you'll notice is that Gomer is a brother to Magog and Medai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tiras. Now, what we do know is that Javan is Greece. We believe that Magog is a combination of Meshach and Tubal, two different countries joining as one big alliance, uh, so that the two of those fit somewhere with Turkey and somewhere like Georgia. Uh, and then tiras we don't necessarily know in Madai, that would be a whole different study so what i looked at is there's a lot of different opinions of what War gomer was some people put it over towards greece and in that area some people put it all the way over in africa some people try to put it over in asia but in general most people agree that it was somewhere uh in that area uh between israel uh turkey uh, and iran now I know that someone who's looking at this and seeing that uh, I have Iraq there listed uh, is going to take alt with that because we know that that would become the Babylonian Empire, that that's where Babylon would come from uh, and that Ezekiel should know to call it by that name. Uh, however, what I want you to notice Uh, is that even in the ancient time, of course, we understand it's where the Syrians would come from, uh, that there's already a lot of countries associated with that particular area. Uh, And so it's hard to say that I'm right on this one. But what I would say is that we are working off of ancient names for the area, not the ancient name for an empire, not the ancient name uh, for some of the kingdoms that may have been there prior to all of this, but... (laughs) understanding that syria is just to the west of this the babylonians were an empire that would come about in later time uh i feel like that when babylon comes about that they come from gomer Uh, i know that the earth Chaldees speaks to a large broader area around there uh that again a lot of names associated with that area so it's kind of hard to fit gomer as one of them Uh, but i do believe it probably is because again most every map that seems to be remotely accurate puts that as gomer it does fit if you understand that it would have been the name prior to Syrian Empire and Babylonian Empire and all these other kind of empires taking over the area. It would have just been an old ancient name for the area. Then the other one that is almost equally as hard uh, is Togarma. Togarma. Um, it is an interesting one because a lot of people put this as just being part of Turkey, and I think they do that for the same reason that I'm going to say it at least has to be associated with Turkey. Uh, And that is what they're famous for. Uh, We see that was a son of Gomer, so it shouldn't be too far away from this area, theoretically. Uh, But you'll notice that what they're famous for is that they traded in horses, horsemen, and mules. Uh, So just to show you how crazy I was in doing this study, uh, one of the things I looked up is where mules were invented. Where do they come from? uh, What time period were they invented? All that kind of stuff. And the answer is they come from Turkey. They come from the western side of Turkey, where you see close to where it connects over into the main part of Europe. uh, They're next to Greece. Uh, That's where they were first invented. That area is very famous for horse trade. That's why most people put Ma ma as being part of that area. Uh, What I note, though, is since they would have been required to have moved out of the mainland and settled an area of their own, Uh, There are certain maps and certain things that put it as very possibly being somewhere around Bulgaria, not necessarily Bulgaria, but somewhere in that area. Uh, One of those countries in that area. It could also be just about anywhere else. But to be honest with you, I am not settled on that having to be right. Uh, It just does seem to be the best answer, having looked at old maps and understanding the idea of, uh, you know, horse trading and stuff at that time period. Sheba, I think, is a little bit more of a simple answer. Some people would like to put Sheba all the way down at the southern part of Africa. I do think the Bible evidence, though, would put that Sheba is Yemen. Uh, Modern day Yemen is where that would be. Most people agree with that. Almost every map you'll ever look at agrees with this idea. Uh, I apologize if you're missing these words on the screen because, again, this is the part of the slideshow that's the old part. I didn't reconsider uh, the fitting of the Zoom screen and how it would Internet. Oh. Uh, it seems like it just started again all by itself so if the live stream is not going to cut off we'll finish it uh, I apologize for that delay last time I tried to do this we had equal problems Uh, So again, I apologize, Uh, I do have an issue that I'm not sure if it's going to let me do a screen share uh, after it got closed out on me, let me try that and I've got other problems. Uh, all All right, bear with me for just a minute. Uh, I have to try to figure this out as to how to get this to work nicely with me uh, and do what I'm asking it to do. I think the answer is that it's not going to. So let's see if we can make this work another way uh, by doing this. Does it work? Let's see if that's going to work for us. Uh, If not, yeah, there we go. All right. We're all the way back at the beginning. I tremendously apologize for that. I'm not going to make you sit through all of that. Give me just a second to get back to where we're supposed to be. Uh, for someone who says Romania coming in the list, uh, Bulgaria took Romania's place in the list. Uh, so Romania is not coming up in the list tonight. Uh, that was the modification I made last time. Uh all right let's see if we can catch up to where we were we're almost done we're right at the end of this uh it seems like every time i teach on this there's some level of technical difficulty uh i have no idea uh as to why particularly this happens but it seems like something's against this particular message okay so here we are with sheba and when the queen of sheba heard the fame Uh, Heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, uh, with camels that bear spices and with very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Now, we understand who this is. Let's then see where she was from. Uh, When the queen of the south, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment uh, with this generation and shall condemn it. uh, For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So what we know about Sheba is that the queen of Sheba comes from the south, uh, from the uttermost part there. uh, And I do believe, again, that that's still Yemen. I See, one thing that people struggle with is when you see what all she brings to Solomon, some of these are things that are very much having to come from the African continent. You're not going to get them in Yemen. But that's something that's very interesting about this is that the Sheba was, again, like with what we see with Gog and Magog, a connection of two countries. Uh, the Sheba was both the it was an empire made up of what was called Sheba and Seba. Uh, the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents. The king of Sheba and Seba uh, shall offer gifts. It had one king, but there were two different countries. Uh, there were two countries joined under one king, uh, or in that particular time, one queen uh, with the queen of Sheba, the queen of South. And so, Sheba would be Yemen. The other part of that, Seba, is the part that was over on the African continent, which means that She that Sheba would have at all times had access. Uh, to those things from the African continent that Yemen would normally have when you see the gifts that she brings to Solomon and so forth. So Dedan then, I think, brings Saudi Arabia into this. uh, And I believe Dedan specifically, I think, was just the western coast of Saudi Arabia. Uh, However, I have no problem with highlighting the entire country of Saudi Arabia uh, for the lesson we're doing. That what I want you to notice. The thing that I think helped me to pinpoint Don better than some of the other stuff uh, is what's seen in this verse, where it says that it's known for the young lions thereof. Uh, that when we look at Dadan, it's associated with having lions. Uh, this, again, is another place where I'm going to sound like a crazy person because I actually did research on where the population density of lions are uh, in Africa. And you might be surprised to find out that the western coast of Saudi Arabia is a highly dense populated area for lions. Uh, the other parts I think that stand out is that Sheba and Dedan, uh were brothers. If Sheba was a male's name. It sounds like a woman's, but we're going to go with it being a male. Uh, it says that Jachin begat Sheba and Dedan. So again, normally families would stick together. Uh, also, this is another case that almost every historical map um, puts Dedan as being uh, on the western coast of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the men of Dedan were thy merchants at many isles, uh, were the merchandise of thine hand. They brought for thee a present horns of ivory and ebony. Uh, Dedan was thy merchant of precious clothes and chariots. Uh, So, again, it's somebody who at least has to have access to the African continent as uh, ivory and those things are things that in ebony were things they would have had to have gotten from there. Uh, They're not available just anywhere. And so there I believe you have Shiva and Dedan. Here's where a lot of people are going to disagree with me, and that's Tarshish. Uh, Most people would say that Tarshish is Spain. Uh, However, for the same reasons that they would say it is Spain, I am going to say that I personally believe it's Algeria. Uh, And I'm going to give you a reason why I believe it has to be Algeria and not Spain. Uh, It says, pass you over to Tarshish, how you inhabitants of the Isles. So the one thing we do know up front is that Tarshish is beyond, uh, even according to Ezekiel 38, Tarshish is beyond the islands there in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the reason why most people put it as far away as Spain Is because when you read how long it took for Solomon's servants, uh, it took them three years to make the trip to Tarshish and to come back uh, to get the items that they were going to get for Solomon. Uh, What you notice about that is that was estimated that that would be that they would be traveling to Spain. But notice the later part of the verse. It says bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. Uh, I want you to note that um, Spain doesn't have most any of those things. Uh, Algeria, being part of the African continent, has access to all of those things. Peacocks live there. They find them no problem. Uh, Apes are found in abundance in certain places there. Ivory, uh, that's one of the chief places you would find it. Uh, Silver is quite common there as well. Uh, Gold is quite common. Um, Spain, however... Uh, has access to very little, uh, if any, of those things in an abundant amount, uh, whereas Tarshish should be known for those things. So to me, that puts it as having to be a place that is at the farthest reach in that area, uh, that it has to be beyond the islands, it has to be Far, just as far away as Spain to make the timing fit, but it has to be somewhere that has access to all of these things that are quite unique, uh, that could be found very easily in the African continent. The reason why I pick uh, Algeria as opposed to something like Morocco or something like that, to be honest with you, comes down to something quite simple. Quite a few old maps say that that was Tarshish. Uh, also, uh, if you look at ancient uh, tribal names for the area, uh, there are quite a few ancient tribes that seem to derive their name from Tarsus. Uh, So that's my opinion. You don't have to agree with me, but I say this is something of an outline of what the kingdom of the Antichrist would look like. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be these countries. I'm especially saying I'm willing to disagree with myself uh, on Georgia, on uh, uh, Bulgaria, and I feel pretty confident on some of the others. But I'm willing to say I could be wrong on some of this. But here's what I think confirms some of my opinion on this is that when you look at other empires that are listed babylon this has to have the some of the the power the bite that babylon had okay well most of the major empires cover the king countries covered by babylon uh, are covered by the kingdom of the antichrist now i want you to note when i show you these maps of these empires these are not accurate in terms of where the exact border was these are showing which countries were affected by the empire Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. When you look how they reached, it has to be that it has the stomp, you know, the the feet of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, just, again, a little more claw, a little more strength to it. Uh, And you see that it's almost exactly the same countries that I showed you a minute ago uh, as being part of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, It was with the ones I showed you with the King of the Antichrist. Uh, It has to proceed from that. Greece, when you look at their empire and how they extend, Uh, You know, you have this empire spread here across Europe, Asia, Africa. It's an incredible empire there. Uh, But you'll also notice, just like all the rest of them, uh, it is featuring most of the same places we just talked about. Uh, especially the seed of it all Uh, you'll notice it's quite interesting that almost all of these empires are focused not necessarily even around Israel but that area just right above Israel and uh, going back in towards Turkey uh, it seems to be at the heart of all of these countries all of these empires Rome is the one that's different uh, because Rome extended itself into Western Europe uh, in ways that nobody else did Uh, But you will notice this, that even with the Roman Empire, we again, believing that this is some connection to it and proceeding out of it, uh, is something interesting. When we look at the Roman Empire, we think of it in this form. We think of it as being this massive empire uh, that wasn't like the rest, that conquered areas that the others couldn't get to and so forth. What we fail to remember sometimes is the Roman Empire is split. Uh, That the Roman Empire, that Western side of it that's so unique and different uh, from... The rest of these empires, it fail as far as we can see in modern day, uh, and it's gone. Uh, whereas the Byzantium Empire went on to actually continue to be a powerhouse long after Rome was uh, essentially faded into, into obscurity. Uh, that the, Byzant- the Byzantium Empire, uh, that eastern part of the Roman Empire, went on to grow and become something even worse, the Ottoman Empire, uh, which was a great powerhouse of an empire. Uh, that had an impact on the world that can still be felt today. Uh, There are still ripples from this empire going on throughout the world today, and you'll notice something about this empire. This is what's interesting to me. If you look at it, that's the map I showed you earlier of the kingdom of what I believe the kingdom of the Antichrist to look like. That's the exact outline uh, of the Ottoman Empire. There's a few places is missing. You know, the Ottoman Empire reached up into Romania. They, they never got a full hold of Romania, though. That's actually the reason why I backed my opinion about Togermat down from Romania to Bulgaria uh, is because of the fact that Bulgaria was fully under their control. But Romania, there were some issues. That's one reason why I felt a little bit led that maybe I was wrong about that. But you'll notice it's almost the same empire. The only difference is some of the, the gaps aren't filled in on the map that I showed you. Uh, And I mean, the orange, there's some green places there that aren't covered. Uh, And so what I say then at that point is that understanding the kingdom of the Antichrist and how it's going to proceed into uh, the tribulation and all the way up to the Battle of Armageddon is that my personal conviction and belief about the kingdom of the Antichrist is contrary to what a lot of people believe it to be. Uh, And that is this European centric uh, Roman Catholic based uh empire is i truly believe it's going to be a middle eastern based empire it makes far more sense that israel would be at the heart of all of this uh that they would be surrounding them they it's been that way throughout history it's not stopped uh you know there's been times where it kind of faded away and times where it comes back but even today some of your more powerful and wealthy countries in the world today are some of the ones you see highlighted uh in that area so what i want you to understand uh and take away from this is that biblically it seems to me that contrary to what has been taught to us for so long that the kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be some connection of the old Roman Empire in Western Europe, I believe it's going to be that eastern part of the Roman Empire, the part that went on to thrive, the part that went on to feed into the Ottoman Empire, the part that uh, has never really truly, I mean, the Ottoman Empire has been gone for a long time, but the power of that uh, and that connection that's been felt through Islam in that area has never really went away. Uh, And so I believe when we talk about a one world government and the kingdom of the Antichrist, I believe we're looking at a connection of these countries coming together, submitting their power to that one horn that rises up above the rest. That horn, then using that power uh, as Satan also gives him his dominion over the world to conquer the rest of the world uh, and to push people in submission under that one world religion. Now, I don't necessarily say that it's going to be an entirely Islamic religion because he's not interested in old gods and things that his fathers before him worshipped, according to what we learn about him. Uh, I do believe he's going to use that to manipulate masses because there's already uh, within Islam a pre-equipped understanding of this idea uh, that they're, they're waiting on a Messiah to come out and wipe out all the Christians and all their enemies. Uh, and so everything that's needed for a man to rise into power in that kingdom and in that area uh, and to, to, to build this idea that would explain away the rapture and be able to present himself as the Messiah is already there within the religion. It's already there within the culture. The, the connections already felt uh, across Islam in that area as well. Uh, and so understanding all of this, uh, what you see is that the kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be uh, an empire that's centric to that area. Uh, it is going to be uh, an empire that builds upon the Islamic religion and uses the fact that is already shaking hands with Catholicism, uh, with other religions. Most of the countries you're seeing right there are Muslim countries. A few of those are not uh, Muslim countries. Some of those still consider themselves to be Christian countries. Some of those, Bulgaria in particular, uh, is a uh, Orthodox country. I believe Ethiopia would still probably consider itself to be a Christian country. Uh, But you see that with these countries, there's already within the religions that are predominant there, a shaking of hands with Islam. Ah, uh, the rest of the world's already ready to join up with it uh, and so I think, in terms of giving you a little bit of understanding uh, into terms of how all this lines up for the Battle of Armageddon, how the kingdom of the Antichrist is built, I think this is where it all begins. It's not where it ends, because we know it's a one-world religion, a one-world government. We know there is a false prophet who's going to step up at some point, uh, who is going to help implement the mark of the beast, who's going to build that image that people will worship, uh, and is going to really bring people to the worship of the Antichrist. Uh, Now, when I look at that particular thing, i actually have some interesting thoughts about that i don't know that he has to be like what we typically think of a religious leader uh you see that he just has to be someone who's able to make people worship the beast Uh, he could be someone who comes from the outside of the religion but gets people from the rest of the world willing to join it someone who has great influence and great power over people uh and so there's a lot there to unpack and take in again this was the portion of the message any once you see the map uh, that's all the portion of the message where it's uh, theory and opinion, except for that section where we're flipping through the, the empires that already existed. Uh, I just give this to you because it's something that I've studied in the past. I think it's helpful to you and you can look at it and take from it how you want uh, and build your doctrine upon it. So I'm going to ask if you made it this far in the message, go ahead and leave your amen because we're here at the end of it. I'm just going to close it up by bringing out the main point. That Ezekiel 38, 39, being the Battle of Armageddon, shows us what armies are going to line up to fight there. Uh, I believe these to be the ten kings, kingdoms, uh, they're going to be a part of this. That these are the countries that are going to be the seat of the Antichrist power. These are the countries that are going to go to the Battle of Armageddon. Not every country that's under his power is going to go to the Battle of Armageddon Uh, because he'll rule the whole world, but not everybody's going to go to that fight. Not even all of these countries are going to go to that fight. There's going to be people who hang back, because, again, God says when he puts the jaw and the hook into their jaw to draw them to the battle, he's going to keep back that part of their armies. And those are the ones who will stick around through the kingdom, uh, and they will be there for the final battle there in Revelation 20 when they are then wiped out completely. Uh, but I think for you, if you're someone who's interested uh, in all of this, someone who's listened to every kind of crazy theory that's ever been offered about, oh, the, oh, America is this country and Canada is that country, and trying to include the big major countries of the world into this. That this may be helpful for you to just look at this and realize that biblically speaking, the world does not revolve around Europe. It does not revolve around the United States. Uh, It doesn't revolve around uh, (laughs) South America. The fact is human life began in this seat, this part of the world we're looking at on the map right now history has revolved around this part of the world, as far as the history that has impacted the world beyond any other. Uh, This is where our Lord and Savior lived his life. Uh, That's why we call that little spot there in the middle, that green spot where Israel is, it's why we call it the Holy Land. Uh, Everything that's affected you up till now has mostly come from this area. It's only logical that the major players at the end of the world are gonna come from this area as well. Uh, Is to me the logical answer, And I think we can take away from that, that even though I may be wrong about some of the individual countries, what you're going to look at for the kingdom of the Antichrist is going to look something like this. All right. So I'm going to close in prayer. I've kept you long enough. I appreciate those who stuck it through to the end. Uh, Father, we thank you and praise you, God, for how good you are. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to study some of these things, uh, to look at them, uh, to try to learn from you concerning them. I pray, God, that you'd help us to have wisdom, to be open, Lord, to always learn and understand your word a little more. I pray, God, that you just speak to us and help us, Lord, to uh, better understand and appreciate your word in these causes, Lord. We just thank you, God, for what you do, uh, and we ask it of you in your son Jesus' name. All right. So, again, I appreciate you joining. Uh, I appreciate everybody who stuck it through. Uh, I have no uh, issue with anybody who didn't make it all the way to the end. Uh, but let me go ahead and close out uh, this screen share uh, and everything that's going on with, uh, with Zoom, if it will decide to cooperate with me and allow me to do so. Uh, but it seems like Zoom is not going to do that. So we're going to have to find another way to close out the live stream because Zoom is malfunctioning. Uh, And so I'm going to go ahead and close out the live stream. I appreciate everybody joining and being a part of it. Uh, And I hope.